You're listening to Happy Healthy Hormones with Dr. Chris. Are you tired of the short-term patch to your health problems? Is avoiding medications and surgeries important to you? If you answered yes, then your prayers have been answered. Dr. Chris has been helping people transform their health for over a decade. He's a world-renowned health expert who specializes in holistic health. He's a professional speaker, chiropractor, and international best-selling author. It's his mission to help you reach your full God-given potential through holistic health and healing. Get ready to be inspired and transformed. Here's your host, Dr. Chris. All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode. We've got a special guest here today. We've got Loretta Bruning. She is a PhD. She is amazing what she does, and so I'm excited to get into things today because she's going to be talking to us today about really what happiness is all about, and with with her research and the people that she's influenced over her life um, and the books she's wrote, uh, she is the expert in this area of what happiness is, our primal instincts. So, Dr. Loretta, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, Loretta, first off, I want to give our listeners an idea of your story that brought you to where you are today, Uh, not just necessarily specifically with the the happy hormones that you're working with, but just what brought you on this journey to help people uh, today. Can you share that with us? Sure. So I had studied formally the social science model of what motivates people. And I was a mother and a college professor for 25 years. And you can imagine that I saw a lot of people who were not motivated. And so that got me feeling that something was not quite right with the social science model of motivation. And the most shocking of all to me was that the children of social science professors who were doing everything by the social science book were not especially motivated. And so I started looking for information and stumbled on little mentions of the brain chemicals that we've inherited from animals and how all of our good feelings are caused by these chemicals, but they are not designed to be on all the time. They have a very specific purpose, and it's hard to understand the purpose in your daily life because we have a verbal brain that explains things in a different way, explains our motivations in a way that makes us sound good. And when you study animals, you say, oh, that's exactly why people do things that they do. That's so that's awesome. how I got into it. <laughs> that, that's great. That's funny where life takes us. And so when, when you look at this, what is the Inner Mammal Institute? Because that's, that's your institute. And what was the vision behind that as well? So I saw how useful this information was to me and other people, but it's not nice in polite society to lecture people. So whenever I would be among the usual conversations of people complaining and complaining and blaming their feelings on the world, and when I would try to explain this, um, you can't do that in ordinary life. So I guess that's where I put all of my insight into. And... I don't, I want to be for something rather than against something, but it is useful to say that I'm against the disease model of understanding our brain, which is that life is fun all the time unless you're broken. And if you're broken, then the healthcare system can fix you. So rather, it's like, 
we're all born animals and we have to work very hard at doing things that stimulate our happy chemicals in the short run that don't have bad long-run consequences. So we have two brains because we need both and our human cortex is aware of the long-run consequences of our actions. And if we're always thinking that life should be a party and then if it's not, then we should blame the system and then when things go wrong, it's the system's fault. This is not a good use of, of our brain power that we have inherited. No, absolutely. So do you think in our culture then, do you think that we've been trained to go against our innate instincts as, as animals? So here's the thing. Animals are not nice to each other. <laughs> so the whole idea that modern society is the problem and if you tear down modern society, then we'll go back to peace and love. This is part of the whole flawed social science model. So in fact, we're all struggling very hard to restrain our animal impulses. And there's two aspects of that. One is that animals are very competitive, but the other is that animals have to work very hard for food and they, they don't overeat because it's so hard to get whatever food you can get. So in the modern world, when it's so easy to meet those basic survival needs and we're not fighting off predators, we have to think more carefully about how to direct our energy and how to feel excitement when we're not getting excited about just finding food and water and safety. Interesting. So what exactly is the inner mammal institute? Like someone looks at that and might be like, well, it's oh. just a bunch, about, a bunch of animals. And what is this really about? Oh, oh. So it's mainly my website, which has a lot of free resources and information about my books. It's also a discussion group on Facebook for people who are interested and want to talk about this. Hmm. And I, it's also a sort of a library. I have collected books on this subject because a lot of this information is disappearing because it's been replaced by the social science idea that animals have peace and love all the time. And if we tear down society, we'll go back to effortless peace and love. So that is a new idea. And before that, there was a hundred years of research Show, you know, um, documenting the conflict among animals. And before that, people lived with animals and they saw the conflict among animals. So you couldn't BS them about the idea that animals are altruistic. What is, that's a good point. I didn't think about that before. You know, so oftentimes in today's society, people are disconnected to even where their food comes from. Like they're like, they don't, they don't even think about, okay, did this come from an, from an animal? Like what was the process in that? Mm -mm -mm. Right. We don't, I mean, the average person, if they're lucky, maybe they have a pet cat or something. And Yeah, and pet animals are not a good model of oh. the job our brain is designed to do because they have food handed to them, so they don't use that seeking impulse that we've all inherited. And no, when you seek, you get excited with each step toward the reward. That's dopamine. And you have to actually take steps. So if you dream about something big, you get excited first because it seems like a big reward. But if you don't take steps, then that excitement goes away. But if you take steps, then you get excited but only if you get closer, if your steps are working. And that's not easy to do in ordinary life. 
So that's really the challenge of managing the brain that we've inherited. Interesting. Now, I want to get into some detail with some of these, the, hap, the four happy chemicals that you talk about in, in sure. your books. And so can you break down what those four happy chemicals are and how they play into our daily lives? Sure. So the four happy chemicals that I talk about are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. Each of these people have probably heard of and are in the news for different reasons, which is mostly because the news comes from the disease model, which is the idea of something went wrong. How can we fix it so that life goes back to effortless happy chemicals, which is so not how they're designed to work. So I'll explain how each of them is designed to work. So dopamine rewards you when you expect a reward. So if you think that you're thirsty in the desert and you see an oasis in the distance, then it's like, wow, my needs will be met. So your brain rewards you with a good feeling when you see a way to meet your needs and step toward it. And once you get water, it doesn't make you happy a bit. So it's the unmet need that stimulates dopamine and it's the step toward it. So if you walk toward that oasis and it's not an oasis or if you fail to approach it, then the dopamine <coughs> stops. But if you get the water, also the dopamine stops. So that's the challenge. I'll move on. Um, we could always talk more. So um, serotonin. This is, um, and by the way, each of these has a downside and each has like the side that you've heard in the news and each of them has a drug of abuse that they're equivalent to. So I could go into all that and I explain it all in my book. What, what but, would be um, a equivalent for dopamine, like in a drug that maybe a street it's cocaine. Or it's cocaine. cocaine. Yeah. So you could see why if a person takes cocaine, two problems. One is we're not meant to have it every minute. And the other is that cocaine is more than the natural quantity that you would get. And it tells your brain, wow, this is the most useful reward I've ever had in my whole life. So then nothing seems important except getting more dopamine, uh, more cocaine. And is there a medical drug that acts similar in the brain? Um, so the idea is um, anything that is perceived as a reward, which could be like a double chocolate cookie, mm. or it could be a night out on the town, or it could be even a massage. Mm. It could be something healthy. It's um, Well, this all fits in with the unhappy chemicals. So anything that relieves a threatened feeling is the most important reward you can get. So if I go to the doctor and then he fixes me, then that's a reward. It's like, wow, I want that. So dopamine is designed to, to guide you. It, neurons connect when dopamine flows, and that wires you to seek more of whatever triggered it. So it's your brain saying, this is going to make you feel better. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. So um, serotonin is widely heard of in the context of antidepressants. And what you don't hear is that in the 1980s, there was research on the, um, the one-upping behavior of animals. Well, there was like decades and decades of research, but in the 1980s, it was tied to serotonin. So animals are constantly competing with each other because it promotes their genes. And our genes are inherited from individuals who successfully kept their genes alive. So 
we've inherited a brain that rewards you with the good feeling of serotonin when you get the one-up position. And that doesn't mean that society gives it to you or it doesn't mean that you have to be evil, but it could mean that. But it's just a moment of feeling like, ah, I got it going on. I'm on top. And then the chemical is metabolized in a few minutes and the good feeling is gone, which is why people drive themselves crazy trying to get that good feeling again and again. And in the animal world, um, if you reach for a banana in the presence of a stronger monkey, then you're going to get bitten. So weaker monkeys are like very careful. They don't reach for food. They don't reach for mating opportunity. And they look for ways of like, where can I be in the one-up position so that I can do what it takes to keep my genes alive? And serotonin is that good feeling that says, you are in the position of strength. You're, it's your turn. Your needs will be met. And of course we want that. And in a world where we're safe and warm and have full bellies, that's all we care about because everything else has come so easily. Mm, interesting. So the, the serotonin doesn't act like the drug, like the dopamine, but it's still that good feeling that we get from that as well. It's a different good feeling that rewards a different behavior, which is, you could call it assertion, social assertion. Now, is serotonin less addictive than the dopamine feeling? Oh, good question. Um, you may have heard of people who um, take steroids to for bodybuilding and they get this thing called roid, roid rage. Yeah. So this has been associated with, um, like if you can imagine that if you think you're in the one-up position too much, that you will create conflict in your world. So that's why each of these is designed for that specific purpose and not to just be high on them all the time. Gotcha. So they could each potentially be just as addictive as the other, depending on what gets wired in your brain. Okay. Yeah, this is it. So they're all addictive in the sense that we want them. They're all addictive in the sense that when we get them, our brain builds connections that says this is how to get it. So, so addiction is really a disease term that is not very useful because everything's addictive. It's gotcha. just that when you take something unnatural, then that is so much more attractive than any natural reward you can get that you stop focusing on healthy ways to stimulate the chemical because now you've wired yourself to focus on the unhealthy way. Perfect. That makes perfect clarity. So let's talk about oxytocin next. Yeah. So oxytocin for anyone in the medical world may know that it stimulates um, labor and lactation. Mm -hmm. And so what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> so um, in this animal world, it triggers social trust. So reptiles do not have any attachment or bonding between parent and child. And a reptile leaves its parent the instant it's born. But mammals attach to their parents because of oxytocin. And then in adolescence, a mammal transfers its attachment from its parents to its um, herd. And attachment to a herd keeps you safe from predators. But living in a herd is very frustrating, we all know, and we would all rather wander off and explore a greener pasture. But when you wander off on your own, you can get eaten by a predator in an instant. So natural selection built a brain that warns you 
uh, that rewards you with a good feeling when you stick with the herd and you lose that good feeling, your oxytocin falls when you leave the herd. And how you define the herd depends on the oxytocin of your past. So whatever triggered that safe feeling of social trust when you were young wired you to feel it today. And that could be good things, but it could also be bad things. So the example I use as a teacher is um, if someone befriends you so that they could cheat off your exams. <laughs> so um, that's like an example of social trust that doesn't really serve you. And then if you refuse to cheat with that person and then you lose that social alliance, then you feel that. So, so we're primates are always negotiating social trust. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's a great example. Actually. Yes. <laughs> I think everyone's probably experienced that example at some point in their life. If they've been to any kind of schooling for sure. Hopefully on the receiving end and not on the cheating end. <laughs> hey, no judgment zones around here, but absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, that's great. Okay. And then, then, then your next healthy or your next happy hormone. So the, the last one is um, endorphin. And endorphin is chemically the same as opioid. And the word endorphin means endogenous morphine. So it's your body's own morphine. And it is not designed to flow all the time. It's designed for emergencies. So when you watch nature videos and you see an animal with um, lion's claws and the lion ripped open its flesh, but the gazelle can still run even with its flesh ripped open because endorphin masks pain with a euphoric feeling for about 15 minutes. After that, we're designed to feel pain because we need information so we can protect our injuries. So runner's high is what people have most often heard about, but running only makes you high if you run to the point of self-injury. And I am always repeating, I am against self-injury, so I want to be clear that we are not designed to seek endorphin, we're designed to seek the others, but endorphin is just there for emergencies. Got it, so when people do things like self-injure themselves, is it because they're actually triggered to, they're getting satisfaction from that in their brain then? Yes. And you know what? All of these complex behaviors, they get endorphin from that, but they may also get dopamine from looking forward to it because they anticipate relief to their distress. And they may even get a sense of superiority from doing it, which is serotonin. And they may get oxytocin if they go on like message boards with other people who do it. So this is how these complex habits form. It's unfortunate. And that's why I'm so committed to helping people understand these motivators so we can find better ways to do it. So let's shift gears to the next aspect of this. And I think some of these things you've hit on a little bit already, maybe in pieces. So if something's repeated, just let me know. But how do the habituation, the cortisol, the myelin, and the mirror neurons play into our happiness? Sure. And uh, by the way, I'm going to do this fast, but it's all on, it's all free on my website, on the homepage, and then in much more detail in my book, which is very cheap. 
So we'll make sure we get all that information to you listeners that want that. So we'll make sure we have that at the end of today's notes for sure. Great. So habituation is the idea that your brain takes the rewards you have for granted. So if you think about like our ancestors on the Oregon Trail and they were hungry and then they found a berry tree and they were thrilled. Oh my God, I'm going to eat berries, eat berries. But then after a while, you've had enough berries, you want some protein. So our brain is designed to focus on the unmet needs. So whatever you already have, you take it for granted. And if your spouse takes you for granted, this is just how the brain works. So um, I'm not, you know, I go in more detail on that in the book. So let's move on. So um, myelin. So myelin is a fatty substance that coats your neurons the way plastic coats a wire and makes your neurons 100 times more efficient. So anything you do with your myelinated neurons feels natural and normal and easy. So the simple example is speaking your native language versus learning a foreign language. When you speak your native language, you're basically using neural pathways that you myelinated when you were young. And a young brain has lots of myelin, and after you're 20, forget it. It's complicated, but that's why you have to really, you know how hard you have to work to learn a foreign language. Now, our emotions are the same thing. The behaviors that we repeated, the rewards and pain that we experienced in youth built myelinated pathways. And if you want to rewire your emotions after you're 20, it's just as hard as learning a foreign language. But the point is you can do it just like learning a foreign language. Absolutely. That's great. And how does cortisol... I think you might have, so, yeah. we talked so, about that a little bit earlier, but. Yeah. So cortisol is the chemical that tells you that your survival is threatened. And the familiar example is um, a predator chasing you. And in the modern world, you consciously know that a predator is not chasing you, but we have this natural alarm system that we've inherited. So if you grew up in a safe world, but you didn't get invited to a party, and that's the worst feeling you ever had, then your natural inner mammal sees that as, I am excluded from the herd, so I'm going to be eaten by a predator, and my genes are gonna be wiped off the face of the earth, and of course you're not consciously thinking that, but you're releasing chemicals that make your body feel that way. Interesting, that's great. Now, if you, if you could give someone one action step, that they could do like right now to start activating more of those happy chemicals in a healthy manner, what would that one thing be? Take small steps toward a reward, um, steps that you can control. So break your goal into small chunks and make it chunks that you have control over rather than the world isn't doing right by you and then take small steps all the time. So have a step you could take in the next hour and then take it and then celebrate it and then look forward to your next step. That's huge. I think most people fail that when they're planning out their goals and they're achieving those things. They don't take the time to actually enjoy it. And I think what you're talking about, if you don't take the time to enjoy it, you're not producing those stimulations that are maybe releasing the, I might be getting the wrong hormone here, but maybe the serotonin or the dopamine or whatever that yeah. is like, oh, okay, yes, I, I achieved that thing. Let's keep going. It gives you that extra boost to go to that next level, that next step in your goal. Well, if you take a step 
then you get a sense of accomplishment, which is dopamine. But if you define your steps in some infinite way that nothing you ever do is enough, or if you don't define your steps at all because you expect the world to come to you, then you don't take the steps. And again, imagine your ancestors, they would have starved to death if they didn't constantly step toward food. So that seeking activity is the job our brain is designed to do. So it's this hardwired in us. We think you're like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm always trying to do that next thing or go get to this next level. Or it's, yes. it's not like that we're messed up. It's just like, hey, this is how we're innately wired. And yes, our bodies because imagine to- there was no refrigerator, there was no supermarket, and you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. And then once agriculture was invented, then it was even more threatening because if you messed up now, you might starve a year from now because you, your crops would run out. So people had really hard lives. And the whole idea that modern life is more stressful, I think it's not really helpful for people. No, absolutely not. Well, you know, I know we have a, a lot more that we could cover and, and there's so much more that people can just take away from your knowledge. So you have three different books. You have Habits uh, of a Happy Brain, The Science of Positivity, and Tame Your Anxiety, which I think in our world, anxiety is through the roof um, and people need to get a control of that. So um, obviously, if you guys are listening right now, get one of those in your in your hands what's what's the most recent of those is it the ha- habits of of a happy no, brain um tame your anxiety is the most tame your anxiety the most recent one but i think they're all great reads and I so think- with that said what is reaching your fullest potential because i ask all my guests this what does reaching your fullest potential mean to to you loretta So to me, it means taking responsibility for your brain chemistry and know that however you're feeling, that you can modulate that, you can manage it, not expecting the world to do it for you, but understanding that you can meet your needs, give yourself that balance between, you know, things you love and things you want to accomplish and just take responsibility for your own brain. That's awesome. And is, we, we just have a, a, about a minute left. Is there anything you're currently working on or that you like to let people know that uh, you're working on as well? Yeah. Well, I'm working on the book for teens because everyone tells me, I wish I learned this when I was young. And of yeah. course, there is that myelination thing and there is that popularity thing. And I find it mind blowing to know that animals care about popularity. So it helps us just relax about all the, this minutia that drives us crazy. Well, that's great. You know, I always tell my patients, it's like, it's so much easier to prevent a problem than trying to overcome one. And the younger we can take care of things and set a foundation, the easier life is later on. But with that said, hindsight is twenty twenty. While we can't change yesterday, we can change today moving forward. And I think that's one of the messages I love about you is that, hey, just because you have these things hardwired in your brain, you've trained your way to you're, you're trained your mind to think the certain way or have these limiting beliefs and they're holding you back. You can overcome that. You can move past that. And I think your books and your resources are, are a great step for that. So, uh, Hey, Loretta, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate having you on here. And, uh, Hey, if you guys haven't had a chance, make sure you go on to, um, Loretta's website. Can you just list your website out for us? Loretta? I'll put it in the show notes as well. Sure. Innermammalinstitute.org. Innermammalinstitute.org. Cool. InterMammalInstitute.org. So check her out there. Check her out on, you're on Facebook as well, I believe, right? Cool. And uh, so we'll have those resources for you guys. Great. Thank you. So nice talking to you.
Absolutely. Till next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please help more people in reaching their fullest potential and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes and other free resources we mentioned today, go to newedgewellness.com.